morning, everyone. Uh, take a wee moment to just say hello to somebody in front of you or behind you. Just realize lots of people maybe don't know those around them. Just say hello. Okay, if you, uh, if you have a Bible with you, would you like to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1? Last week, we, uh, we started this series called Hang Tough, partly because we said or we admitted that to be a Christian today, you're going to need to do this. You're going to need to hang tough. And in a post-Christian, increasingly liberal, secularized pluralistic culture and context, it isn't going to get any easier to follow Jesus. Although no one, including Jesus himself, ever said it would. And just by the way, I did say I would come back and explain why I've chosen this as the title for this series. There are a couple of reasons. One is, how many people uh, remember the TV show Gladiators? Stick your hand there. Lots of people remember that. 1990s TV game show. Well, one of the challenges on Gladiators was called Hang Tough where contestants had to make their way along a really demanding course, faced with opposition in the form of wolf or cobra, and see, see how far they could get or how long they could hang on for. And so that, that kind of sparked my, my idea of behind Hang Tough. The other reason for this title is based on the Cambridge dictionary definition of this phrase, hang tough. I don't know if anybody knows what the definition of that phrase is, but, but here it is. To hang tough means to not change your actions or opinions, although other people may try to make you do this. Now, I fully appreciate there, there, there is a need to have your actions and your opinions challenged or questioned at times. That's actually a good thing. But one of the specific challenges that we face as Christians today is the constant pressure to compromise and dilute our faith and our focus. And therefore, we must hang tough if we're going to avoid losing our grip or if we're going to avoid losing our way altogether. Approximately 2,000 years ago, the situation for the believers scattered over what is now modern-day Turkey, the situation for them 2,000 years ago was really no different. They, like us, and I know we maybe, as we thought about last week, aren't under the cost to the same extent as many millions of Christians are in our world today, but we are still under pressure to compromise and dilute our faith. But these believers 2,000 years ago scattered over modern-day Turkey they were under the caution. They were facing all kinds of hassles and trials simply because they identified with and they had chosen to follow Jesus. And therefore, the apostle Peter wrote to them to encourage them to hang tough in the face of this pressure and of this ridicule that they were under and the temptation to just pack it all in. And right at the end of the letter, as Stephen has reminded us this morning, Peter's strong advice was to stand firm. Stand firm in God's grace. Please, church, believers scattered all over these provinces, be grounded in grace. But at the start, that's how Peter ends the letter, but at the start of his letter, as he works towards that final instruction, he starts by stressing the need to remember 
who you are and whose you are. And this is what we looked at last week. So here, a bit of congregational participation. Who can remember who we are? What were the two words that identify us? Who are we? Elect exiles. You are elect exiles, says Peter. In other words, you are chosen people and you are sojourners. You're chosen people, you're sojourners, you're just, this is not your true home. You are citizens of another place, not this world, you are citizens of heaven. And so let me just quote, as some of you reminded me after, let me just quote Jim Reeves again to counterbalance Stormzy. Uh, This world is not my home, I'm just a what? A passing through, you see, we, we cater for everyone in this church, okay? So you are elect exiles, you are chosen, you are a sojourner. And then secondly, you belong to God, you belong to the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. This is whose you are. You were chosen in eternity past by the Father, you have been set apart by the Holy Spirit, and you have been rescued by Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, by the cross of Christ, and you have been rescued to be obedient to Jesus. If you're going to stand firm, if you're going to hang tough, you are, are going to need to remember who you are. You're also going to need to remember whose you are. So let's pick up the text again and continue. And this morning, we're going to read from verse 3 to verse 13, which in the original Greek, as I understand it, is one long, one very long sentence. So it does need to be read all together. So uh, we're going to stand in a moment, but not, but not just yet. If you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, you will see that verse 3 starts with praise, literally starts with praise. Here's what it says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we have just sang that in that last song, praise the Lord, O my soul. But here in verse 3, it just starts, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or in another translation, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you think, in light of what Peter has said in verses 1 and 2, who you are and whose you are, you think to yourself, absolutely. Absolutely. Given what we have just been reminded of, surely our only appropriate response is to praise. The right reaction in light of who we are and whose we are, is to express our appreciation and our thanksgiving. It is to open our hearts and our mouths, and it is to declare how good God is. It is to sing. It is to, and and this is the actual, as I understand it, the literal definition of what blessed be means here. It means to speak a good word about God. And that's what we've been doing this morning, using our voices. We've been speaking good words about God. God, your gracious and you are compassionate. Now is the time to worship you. Praise be. This is where it starts, in light of what Peter has just said. And and I hope we will continue to do that this morning, because God is worthy of our praise because of who we are and whose we are. But although praise in response to that is good, The remainder of this long sentence, the rest of verses 3 through to 13, continues to show us why. Why does God deserve our heartfelt and vocal praise? Not just because of who and whose we are, but there's tons of reasons we're going to look at this morning, or at least four anyway. Why we should just open our voices, open our mouths, and sing our hearts out 
And so let's now stand for the public reading of God's word. We're gonna read from verses three, two to 13. As I say, this is one long sentence. I know in the past when we've come to portions of scripture where it really is in the original one long sentence, I've attempted to read it really quickly to give that sense of it's just one long sentence, but then a number of you have given me grief afterwards for reading far too fast, so I'm going to read slowly, but you've got to imagine this is one big long sentence, okay? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Don't get too we kind of say don't get too sidetracked by this idea of you know salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Often we talk about salvation as kind of a past thing or a present thing, but very often in scripture it's also referred to as a future thing. Okay? But we're not going to deal with that as such this morning, but just don't get too sidetracked by that. In this you verse six, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. I'm not gonna deal with that bit this morning, but can I just put that out there? Though you have not seen Jesus, do you love him? This was something we were thinking about on the first Sunday of 2018. I asked you that question. Do you love Jesus? And Peter here writes to these believers who like us have not seen Jesus, but he says to them, though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See this idea, this end result of your faith, the future salvation of your souls. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. You see, the Old Testament prophets, they, they long for this, but you are in a privileged position, church, is what Peter's saying. You're in a privileged position. They, they long for the Messiah to come. The Messiah has come. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then this brilliant idea, even angels long to look into these things. You can look into them. Angels long to. Grab a seat. So what, what we've got to remember here is that the people receiving this letter, the people hearing this words first time around, the original recipients, they were, as I've said, up against it. They were facing genuine challenges to their faith and to their Christian lives. And to, so to receive this encouragement, to receive this reminder, this perspective, it was vital, and I want to suggest it remains vital for us. Peter confirms a number of mind-altering 
life-changing truths about their story and about our story. And he says, listen, you need to get your heads round these truths. You need to hold on to these truths in order to avoid buckling whenever the squeeze comes or the squeeze tightens. And it will. And so you need to get your head, you need to wrap your minds around this. And they're all connected. And so the first, we're going to look at four. The first is found in the second half of verse three. And it says this, in his, in God's great mercy, he has given us new birth. Or in the, maybe you're looking at a translation that says, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Can I, can I just pause for a moment and encourage you to just take that in? In God's great mercy, he has given you new birth. You didn't earn this. You don't deserve it. But you've been given it. This new birth is ours and it comes out of the mercy of God. We deserve nothing, we get everything. And this new birth, it results in new life, eternal life. And because our birth, all of our births identify us, this new birth re-identifies us. This then becomes our deepest identity. We are now sons and daughters of the Father. We are now children of the living God. That is the identity we have not earned, we have not deserved. That is the identity we have been given because of God's mercy. And so, back to the beginning of verse three, praise be, praise be too, blessed be, breathe. And let me, let me use a kind of phrase that Stephen used in his prayer. Breathe in mercy, exhale praise. Breathe it in this morning and then sing out irrespective of who or what you're up against. That's the point. Irrespective of who you're up against or what you're facing, in God's great mercy, he has given you new birth. So sing. Following on from this, Peter then paints a graphic picture of an incredible future that lies in wait. And, and this has the potential to alter current thinking and, and reimagine present circumstances. And this is not, please, this is not pie in the sky when you die. This has got contemporary relevance. So for a start, Peter says, you have been given new birth into what? Into a living hope. Now, hope is in relatively short supply these days. Not a lot of people seem to have it or feel it. And hope for most people, and we've thought about this before, hope for most people is about wishing that particular things will happen. You know, fingers crossed, it might happen, it might not happen. But the hope that Peter is referring to here, genuine biblical hope, is not a vague wish. It is a dead cert. So what is this hope? Well, I want you to notice for a start that it's living. 
In other words, this is a hope that pulsates with life. This is a hope that is alive and kicking. This is a hope that has got energy and vitality. And before we identify what this kind of hope consists of, look at what it is grounded in. We're still in verse three. This is gonna take a while this morning. We're still in verse three, but look at what it is grounded in. He has given us new birth into a living hope. What is it grounded in? What is it anchored in? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, Jesus was mocked, he was abused, he was beaten to within an inch of his life, and then he was killed on a cross. But he did not stay dead. Three days after his crucifixion, Jesus rose from the grave. And what we've got to remember is that Peter himself was a first-hand witness of this phenomenon. Peter had seen this with his own eyes. He was one of the first to see it on resurrection day. And so because this actually happened, says Peter, because this is true, because of Jesus' resurrection, and this is the bit, please get this, we also have the hope, the living hope of our own resurrection. And so death for us is not the end. Death does not have the last word on any of us. There is more, so much more to come. There is, we believe, passionately believe, I hope, that there is life after death. And time and time again in Scripture, this is highlighted and it is emphasized. Let me give you two explicit examples. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do we believe that? Another example, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and will present us to himself one day. Do, we believe, do you have that hope? That living, pulsating, alive and kicking, energetic, vital hope? The Bible also admits that, listen, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, I love the honesty of the Bible, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, do you know something? We're all wasting our time. This, this is all in vain. That, that's what the Bible says. But Jesus did, and we will. And whenever you're being persecuted for your faith, whenever you're coming under intense pressure and temptation to give up, the knowledge of this living hope, the assurance that one day we will follow Jesus through death into life, eternal life. That is an amazing, mind-altering, faith-affirming, endurance-sustaining truth. We, one day, will follow Jesus through death into life. And Peter tells these exiles who belong to God, listen, see, in the midst of your suffering, you have got a living hope that nothing in this life can extinguish not even persecution, it's a dead cert. You possess a confident expectation of a future event. That is biblical hope. We have that. Do you have that? Do you know that this morning for yourself? Because if you do, when the squeeze comes, when the squeeze tightens, you might just, Hang in there. You may just stand firm. 
So back to verse three. In light of that, take a deep breath, tighten your diaphragm, and sing. That's what Peter's saying. But he isn't finished, because not only are we promised a future resurrection, we're also promised a future inheritance. Not only are we going to live beyond death, but we also get a bit of an insight into the kind of life we're going to live beyond death. Look at verse 4 again. He has given us, here it is on the screen, he has given us new birth into that living hope, yes, but also into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Every single child of God has a guaranteed inheritance sitting waiting for them. Every single child of God. And unlike so many other legacies, this one is secure. It's not going anywhere. It won't decay. It won't get ruined. It won't disappear. It's not going to get ripped away from us at the last minute. It's not going to mysteriously lose its value. This inheritance is another dead cert because why? To quote Peter, it's kept in heaven for you. So no one is going to get their grubby little hands on it before you arrive. It is kept in heaven for you to pick up when you arrive. When exactly is that going to be? When exactly is that going to be? Well, that's a good question. End of verse 5. Look at the end of verse 5. I don't know if it's on the screen. It will be, Peter says, revealed in the last time. Or in another time, it will be revealed in the last day, which is an explicit reference to the day whenever Jesus returns. And if you want to know when that is, forget it. Forget it. Because as Peter says in his second letter, 2 Peter 3, verse 8, with the Lord, a day is like what? A thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So in God's timetable, Peter only wrote this letter two days ago. The point is not when. The point is you have it. It's yours. It's ready. It's waiting for you. Although this world can rob you, can wreck you, can reel against you. This world is not your home. You are a sojourner. You're only temporarily here. You're only just a passing through, but kept in heaven for you, which is your ultimate destination. It's where you are a citizen of. Kept in heaven for you is an inheritance that is out of this world. And so again, going back to verse three, please strike the chord and sing your heart out. Now, as Peter draws attention to these incredible prospects of a future resurrection and a future inheritance, the fact is that whenever you are in the direct firing line right now, whenever the heat is severe today, whenever the current ridicule and rejection is almost too much for you to bear, and it does just feel like you're hanging on by your fingernails, you are bound to wonder, am I going to make it to the end of this week? Am I going to make it to the end of this month? Am I going to make it to the end of 2018? Never mind, am I going to make it to this glorious future that Peter talks about? Some of you may be asking yourselves that. Some of you are, it feels like hanging on by your fingernail. And then you read or you hear these words, verse five. And, and you know, this grabbed me this week. And I want to reread all of the chunk we've been looking at and then, and then kind of finishing off with this point. Verse five. In 
his great mercy. Back three. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And then get this. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen, God is going to protect and guard us. We're covered. We're covered. Whenever trials come or they intensify, whenever doubts arise, and who doesn't have doubts, whenever we're left feeling like we're left to our own devices, God says, you're not. You're not left to deal with this. You're not left to hang tough. You're not left to stand firm in my grace in your own strength or lack thereof. God shields you. God sustains your faith by his power, not yours. What God has started in you, he's gonna see through to completion. God is shielding you by his power. You may feel you're not going to get through this week, this month, this year. You will, not because you can, but because God can. And because God will see you through. God will watch over you. And so just to summarize what we've been saying, God in his great mercy, he has given you, he has given you new birth. He's given you a brand new identity. You're a child of God. No one can take that away from you. You are an adopted son or daughter of the living God. Secondly, as a result of that, you have a living hope. Death isn't the end. It wasn't for Jesus. It will not be for you. Not only do you have a future resurrection to anticipate, you also have a guaranteed out-of-this-world inheritance that is ready and it's waiting for you. And to top it all, God's power is going to protect you. God's power is going to see you through. And therefore, we sing and we shout and we can and we should, even if the trials and the insults and the ridicules are all too real. Why? Because this is all too real. And so here are, there are four massive reasons to praise and lift our voices. And in a moment, we're going to encourage our hearts to find 9,996 other reasons to sing. But there's four But let me finish with Peter's next comment. In verses six and seven, and it flows from what he's just been saying, and here I am going to end this morning, as I've said. And what we're about to read does refocus the mind somewhat. It does keep your feet on the ground so that you don't get too lost in wonder, love, and praise. And this is a really fascinating dimension to bear in mind as you sing in a moment. Says this. Oh, sorry, can we go back there, Mario? I've just come out of there. That's it. Great. In all of this, says Peter, in all of this you greatly rejoice. And again, you say, Absolutely, Peter, I've got new birth, I've got a living hope, I've got a future inheritance, and God's power is going to protect me. In all of this you greatly rejoice. Yeah, I do. I want to sing. Though, ah, <laughs> though, now for a little while, you may have had to suffer griefs in all kinds of trials. And these come, says Peter, so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, 
that that may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, here again is Peter making the point, listen, trials are not to be unexpected. Trials are not to be unexpected, but this perspective on them is helpful. It's a little unnerving, but it's helpful because Peter says there's a purpose in them. Now, I know this is hard. This is hard teaching. This is not popular teaching. But Peter says, do you know something? There is a purpose in the suffering and the trials. And the purpose is this. They refine our faith and they reveal who is the real deal. In other words, hanging tough through suffering actually purifies us and proves the reality of our faith. Peter is not saying, because he's not that messed up, but Peter is not saying that we should rejoice in suffering itself. Please hear me. Peter is not saying rejoice in suffering itself. The joy of suffering is a weird and a twisted idea. No, what he's saying is that we can know and we can experience joy in suffering because of what it is doing to us and in us. It is refining us and it is revealing that we are the genuine article. And so Peter here doesn't deny that suffering causes distress. It causes great distress. And I know for many of you here this morning, it's causing huge distress. And it's why Peter says that his readers, look at verse 6, he knows his readers are grieved by it. No one is suggesting that any Christian should deny grief and sadness. It is a reality. We must accept it. We need opportunities to express it. We need more songs of lament. I love the fact that Stephen at the start reminded us that so many of the Psalms reflect so many different life circumstances and so many of the Psalms are Psalms of lament and we have the opportunity to do that and we need to lament. No one is denying or saying that we should deny that we face grieves and sadness. But given what Peter has already highlighted about our identity and our hope and our inheritance and our powerful protection, Peter, like all other biblical writers, including James, for example, makes it clear, do you know something? You can still know joy in suffering because God is at work in you. He's shaping and he's molding and he's strengthening and he's revealing the reality of your faith. And so when the going gets tough, what happens? The tough get growing. And so what trials are you facing right now? What griefs are you experiencing at the moment? You do not have to ignore them. You do not have to belittle them, but neither must you despair or be crushed by them. God is at work in your life, and, and hear this, please hear this. He will not waste your suffering. But whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, please remember your identity, your hope, your inheritance, and your protection. God will see you through your suffering. He will refine your faith as you sojourn. And as Peter says in verse 6, it is only for a little while because eternity awaits. 
And so when you're caught in the eye of the storm and when what you're going through is causing you real grief, I know this can be hard to hear. It can be hard to process, but it's why Peter wrote it. It's why we're looking at it. Because it reminds us there's a bigger picture here. There's a bigger picture here. And so, because of who we are and whose we are, because of those four reasons, I'm going to invite the band to come back up and we're going to finish by singing 10,000 reasons. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And, And maybe this morning we will sing it like never before. Let's stand together as we sing.